What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we got on Josh Slisherman of Behind Genius Ventures. Behind Genius is a generalist fund that focuses on product-led growth companies. Josh is the founding partner of the fund. He handles LPs, fundraising, along with sourcing, evaluating, and supporting the companies they work with. In this talk, we discuss the rise of operator-led rounds, getting into seed rounds as institutional money flows upstream, portfolio theory and maximizing shots on goal, and simplifying the role of VC into three core components. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We got one of the dopest in the house today, the homie Josh. Josh is actually, not many people know this, but he's arguably the reason that we started to do the Confluence Access Fund. There was a day where he came to me and said, bro, why don't you just start a fund? Seriously, right now. I'm like, dude, that sounds like odd to say, but why? And this is at the same time he was raising his fund, which has been crushing it. I guess I'll say that to say thank you in public. And outside of that, again, we got Josh Lisherman here from Beyond Genius Ventures, and he's doing some other really dope stuff. So Josh, you want to start us off by giving a quick background on yourself, maybe tell him how you were a professional athlete and uh, converted and started a fund out the mud and all this other stuff. But yeah. Yeah, man. man. No, thanks for having me. First of all, Clay and Ty, really appreciate it. And in terms of you starting the fund, dude, that's all you, man. I'm just glad I planted the seed and you went through with it. It takes a huge amount of confidence to take that leap. And yeah, I guess as a good segue into kind of my background, growing up, as Ty mentioned, I played very competitive soccer, played in Europe, had trials at Man City, Chelsea, also trialed at the Toichi Academy in Bolivia when I was 13. And then a lot of knee injuries hit and going into college, I knew I wanted to get into the entrepreneurial space and caught my break junior year of college, was working for a former alumni who was starting a VR startup. And this was back when VR was well overhyped to, to say the least. And the technology was way early for its time or way ahead of its time and there wasn't really a market and we were in consumer by vr which is like that is a horrible space to enter in and back in 2015 and 2016 and we raised two and a half million i dropped out of college for two weeks and then decided to go back to school because i realized what a horrible decision that would have been and long story short we burned through that money super quickly and that's what led me down the path of investment. Post-grad would join a family office, stayed there for around six to nine months, then uh, joined an emerging fund manager, tried to start a fund pre-COVID. For nine to 12 months, we built technology in-house. Spin it, we spun it into a startup once COVID hit. The fund failed, I left, and everything seemed like the whole world was falling. If it weren't for a few mentors in my life, a special shout out to Arjun Sethi from Tribe Capital and Samit Gajri from Original Capital for taking me under their wing and allowing me to do some angel investments. 
And one of those angel investments actually led me to where I am today, which is one, starting my own fund behind Genius, and two, being the chief of staff at All Blue. One of my portfolio founders actually recommended me to be the chief of staff at this high growth startup backed by a bunch of amazing VCs and feel very fortunate to be in that position. And when I took that job, I brought on a partner for the fund and haven't looked back since. That is beautiful, man. I just realized I was talking to you and my computer is muted. (laughs) (laughs) But no, that's dope. I don't know, most people don't know this, but like Josh is in doing this whole thing, he doesn't even talk about how much hustle he's done. I remember when he was like figuring out if he wanted to go do another fund or start his own fund and like him had like hitting me about all the thoughts and the universes that he could take down. But everything just resulted down him saying, dude, whatever it might be, like if I got to do it a hundred times to get one, I'll do it quickly. And like he follows through, he's always on, he responds in 10 minutes to everything. And again, I'm not surprised at all that you've ended up in the position you are. With that, did you want to talk at all about All Blue or are you still keeping it super duper low? Yeah, it's got to be kept super duper low. I will say we're in the, the space for equity and fund secondaries, but can't go too much into it. But we work with a bunch of amazing VCs and founders. I think that's a blessing of working at All Blue is it's really symbiotic with the fund actually, because my job is literally to talk to VCs and founders all day long at All Blue. Fire. Very much so a Josh move to find full alignment, stay in equilibrium. Okay. You want to talk a little bit more about your fund? Yeah, sure. In terms of the fund, we're a really small fund, a $5 million fund backed by some amazing other funds and GPs, operators. Some of those funds include Tribe Capital and Bonfire Ventures. Operators and GPs include Bobby Goodlotti, Finn Barnes, Katie Stanton. Yeah, just a, a bunch of amazing GPs who, who joined us along the way. And the- Oh man, I'm not gonna lie, those are big names. You got some other ones in the mix that you're not name dropping at. Yeah, no, I can't name drop them all, but (laughs) those ones are special. Those ones are definitely special, as are all of them, but those ones in particular have been very helpful to page in my journey in venture and with the fund. And I think in terms of the thesis, we're generalist in in a lot of senses, but we look for companies that are centered around product-led growth. And our North Star is finding the next Zapier, the next Calumny, the next Honey, those companies that don't need a lot of capital in in order to find product market fit, but have the optionality to raise follow-on funding if need be. And that's our North Star. And yeah, we invest at the seed stage. We're investing in around 30 companies, um, 30 to 35 companies. And yeah, it's been an amazing journey so far. True, true. Now that you are, you're an operator slash fund manager, You want to talk a little bit about a a thesis that we talked about on a call not too long ago, which is the the rise of operator rounds and what that means for like people who are also in your C-stage investors. Yeah, man. The institutional side of this. Yeah, man. This is a super interesting topic. I remember when it hit me like two months ago when I saw the first founder send me a deck that just said operate around and it doesn't signal stage or it's just investor type. And that is a really scary feeling as a new fund manager. But I think it's, it, it's because of two forces that are happening in venture, which one of them is the upstream investors like Sequoia and Andreessen and Tiger Global are moving downstream. 
and are causing these valuations to rise, but they're not actually at the seed stage adding all value, all that value that you might want in a seed stage specific investor. And in fact, could actually be bad signal risk if they don't give you follow on funding. Whereas the, the seed stage specific funds, when they're actually having to move a little bit more upstream in terms of valuation and to compete with those funds. And they are essentially losing out on rounds because Tiger Global and Z, of course, you're not going to say no to getting a check from them. And so what's happening is founders are like, look, we want our valuations to be high, but we still want a lot of value added. And we think VCs are overrated. And so this is a really bad sign for institutional seed stage VCs that lead. Essentially, operators are coming together to syndicate deals and take up a majority of rounds. And I think that is not just a trend that is going to, it's not a moment in time. It's a trend that's going to stay around for a while, actually. The more I talk to founders, the more I see them wanting to align themselves with people who have been in their shoes. I think it's really smart because... One, like you want to have a big name. It's actually a lot easier to get a super dope operator than to have the like top four or five C stage names in your company. Two, you avoid the the risk of them not upsizing because like why would an operator be able to follow one for five rounds? Three, they have better advice or willing to get their hands dirtier. They have smaller portfolios, so you're not just a random distraction or dropping the bucket. And just generally, since this deal that we're looking at are closed on and are pushing out companion. Like they have the number one pet specialist in the world in the like in the round. To me, that's arguably more interesting than if they had, I don't want to name drop any fun. So I'm just going to say even if they had X quintessential fun. Just say Andreessen, man. Just say Andreessen. <laughs> hey, Andreessen, they the homies over there. So yeah, you're right. So like, I'd rather at a certain point have five pet companies, assuming they're not strategic acquirers that are going to like be incentivized to keep them below a B to get an acquisition. That's why I think like funds like Pair and First Round are really rethinking strategy right now from what I understand. It's because like their initial value out of being the first institutional check and adding institutional support doesn't lend as much credence as to what you're saying. It's, oh, if I'm investing in a pet startup, I'd rather invest alongside a pet specialist than some institutional VC that maybe doesn't even do that much follow-on funding and provide that much value at the seed stage. And I think that is an existential crisis for any seed stage focused VC that leads. For co-investors, I actually think it makes it a lot more fun because now I get to say like today, one of the co- my portfolio companies announced their round and I got to say that I invested alongside the chain smokers, which was a lot of fun. I yeah. think that's cool. And I think that's a good thing for venture in general. Totally agree. He talks about people moving downstream. Uh, we've talked about that and how that's affecting the landscape. I'm curious of how you're looking at that. Also, I, I think there's a, a note to be made about people moving upstream as well, but let's focus on the downstream first. Yeah, the downstream is just because what's happening is there are more startups than ever being created and it is incredibly competitive. And it, for the big funds, like again, like Andreessen, Sequoia, KOTU, they need a way to edge themselves into the series A and series B where they can take a large amount of ownership. And for them, four to 5 million is a drop in the bucket compared to their fund size. So they're using it as a way to edge into rounds and I don't actually see that stopping. I think that was actually happening pre-pandemic. You saw a lot of the big funds 
moving downstream, it just got accelerated because of the pandemic and because of the number of startups that are being created today. Yeah, I just see it as VC is finally becoming like fully institutionalized, which means that they have to start thinking about the general like number theories behind like how these portfolios should be constructed. And it's just, everyone says it's clear that you should probably have a larger portfolio early with more ownership and then cherry pick if you have the AUM, right? Like if you're a huge fund, you could pretty easily put 10% of your AUM into an early stage strategy and all of a sudden have 500 companies to choose. I'm like, assuming you're like a multi-billion dollar company versus like for people like us, it's hard to raise the first five, 10, 20 million. So why wouldn't you put 1% of your portfolio into doing something like this and hire one person for extra few hundred thousand dollars? Definitely. I do not actually see this as bad behavior, to be honest with you. Again, I actually think it's a good thing for venture in general that funds are moving downstream it should be competitive. This is, there's this argument of, is there an oversaturation of funds in the ecosystem? And my answer to that is, is there ever too much money to go into entrepreneurs? That is like my response. And the answer is no, there's ne- there's never too much money to go into entrepreneurs. So for the people that are like, there are too many funds there, there's not enough talent. I disagree completely. I think it's a good thing that funds are moving downstream. I think there are more, it's a good thing more funds are being created. And I hope we 2X the number of funds over the next five years. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about, honestly, just partially while you were telling me the success that you've had in your fund, is just, dude, there will also be upstream pressures, right? So if you take it back, like to the first influx or one of the first influxes of a ton of micro funds or early stage C funds, like those people are also in the scaling AUM game. So while these like huge institutions are coming in and giving people whatever price they want, these smaller funds are also like seeing great numbers because first and second time fund managers typically do smaller funds. They outperform, they can raise better funds or like they're now arming themselves for the giants that are coming in. So now they're trying to put in bigger checks as well. So it's actually coming from all angles. I mean, you could call the catalyst, whatever the catalyst might've been, but that's, that's definitely a thing. What are your thoughts on the nano funds? The nano funds, I think for me, again, really good thing for venture. And I think LPs are actually having to rethink about strategy and allocation. And I think nano funds are going to be a huge part of institutional LPs moving forward. Can we pause one second? You give people like a quick one, two, three on what a nano fund is. Yeah, so a nano fund. Yeah, there, there's way too many funds in the universe. Um, no. fun, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, no. Nan- so a micro fund is usually considered sub 100 million, and a nano fund is usually considered sub 25 million, give or take like $5 million or assets under management. And the nano funds, particularly, usually have to raise from high net worth individuals or family offices, that's where they get a majority of their allocation and institutional LPs have typically stayed away from them. But what's happened is one, venture again has become more competitive and because there's an oversaturation of funds or there's an abundance of funds and abundance of capital to be given out and abundance of talent too. LPs are also having to edge themselves into funds. And so the ones that would normally wait till fund two, fund three, when their funds have more assets under management, they actually can't wait until fund two or fund three. And their cost basis for going into those funds becomes exponentially higher the longer they wait. 
And the nano funds, they're mostly investing at pre-seed and seed. They have really good risk return profiles in terms of just outlier returns, maybe not in terms of stability, but the potential to produce outlier returns, which is why I think even all three of us are in venture for. And you look at fun ones that have performed well and the best ones, you look at initialize, they have five unicorns in their first portfolio. That's going to be a greater than 100x portfolio, just maybe off Coinbase alone. Chrisaka at lowercase, his fund one was an 80x fund. And both those funds, a lot of people don't know, were 8 million or 7 million and $8 million in size, respectively. Those were really small funds. And the institutional LPs that invested in Chris's, I actually know one of them. And they would tell you, like, these days, you have to do that in order to edge into their second or third fund. I'm on the LP side of things right now, like quite literally making these decisions for part of one of my things. So it's, it's intense, man. It's really intense. I think it's been more intense than ever. There's a fund that I won't name, but that I know their fund one was, it was around 100, $150 million in size and it 2X for fund two. And they were oversubscribed for their fund two in less than two months. Now, for those who aren't familiar with venture fund fundraising timelines, usually takes 12 to 18 months to raise a fund, especially one of that size. When you're an emerging fund manager, you're only on fund one, fund two, fund three. Like it usually takes 12 to 18 months and they did it in two months. If you didn't get in their you fund You said they one, only 2X their fund? They two they two x their funds, so they're now like three hundred fifty to four hundred million dollars in size. That's that's not incredible. Oh, it's incredible. From a fund one to a fund two, when their fund one. I thought you were saying their their performance of that fund was no no their fund two size is three hundred like fifty to four hundred million, and their fund Uh, size was a hundred one hundred fifty million. They raised twice the amount of money in just two months with no track record technically like no way to go and say oh my god like they have all these markups and they have they haven't returned any cash i think do you know what their returns are on paper right now yeah they're doing well they're obviously not doing poor so 5x that's the only way i could think of validating something like that that's well i think the thing about them that they did really well is three things one brand positioning they branded themselves really well. Two, they got into a lot of deals that were very competitive, that they led with conviction and have gotten markups. So there goes the performance part. And then three, it was like a scalable strategy. Like their fund size increase basically just gave them more follow on capital to follow on into their winners. And so they're economics and terms don't really change from fund one to fund two. My point being is if you didn't invest in their fund one, you were an institutional LP. I don't know if you got into fund two. I actually don't know how many more new LPs they took into fund two. From what I understood, there was very few new LPs that got into their fund two. Mm. Wow. I actually like that. (laughs) It, It incentivizes people to take bets on earlier stage managers. Totally. Very similar thing that's happening in venture. Definitely. What's happening in venture, I truthfully believe this, what happens at the top of the ecosystem, which I would say is LPs, is reflective of what happens at the bottom of the ecosystem with founders. And the behaviors that are exhibited by LPs and VCs are the same behaviors that are exhibited in behaviors from VCs to founders. And the more people can reconcile that and realize that 
all like change starts from the top, the more you'll be able to grasp the problem. And the more I think people will solve the problem of why aren't people super early on? Like why aren't certain subsets and groups of people getting allocation? I think that's where it starts actually is the top of the ecosystem. Agreed. Totally agree. So to that point, and on this evolutionary note, there is an evolution of nano funds that are often probably going to be either from operators who are starting something small on the side or really young investors like us. What are your thoughts on there being more and more young investors starting their own funds? Yeah, I think you're starting to see young investors, specifically those with social capital, are starting to realize there's a way to move up the chain easier and quicker and have more power and control into your investments by starting your own fund than working for a fund. When you think about it, not many junior partners or not many junior associates make partner at a VC firm. And I think what you're starting to see is you're going to see a lot of actually what would be VC associates raise these two to $3 million friends and family social network funds that are their proof of concept to go and say, Hey, I can win deals. I can win allocation into competitive deals and select really good companies and use that as either one, a way to leverage, to build their own firm, a fund two, a fund three, a fund four, or two, to actually go be partner at a firm before the age of, you know, 30, 35, or at a younger age than would normally be expected. Yeah. I think we're all walking testament to that. 100%. Yeah. You go from like fighting for your senior associate role to all of a sudden having decent funds, asking if you want to be a partner or principal or scaled funds, asking if you want to build in a really interesting way. Funds that would have never even picked up your call before. I guess for us, we've been in this for a while, so it's a little different. Like we probably had prior relations, but I, I do think that there's a lot of space for young investors or even people looking to break in who have networks to try that route. I, I actually think the topic of operator investors, I think you'll see even young operators who are maybe at hot startups that are really growing really quickly, raise their own little side funds, whether it's a million to 2 million. The, the cool thing about being an LP nowadays in a sub $10 million fund is you're allowed technically 249 LPs in a sub million dollar fund. If you were to take $5,000 and get it from 200 plus LPs, you're talking about a hundred, you're talking about around $1 million in assets under management, even more. And the cool part is $5,000 isn't, it's a lot, but if you were to go to the founders and accredited investors and be like, look, $5,000 to access the deal flow that I get, that's very proprietary to me because of the network. So you're actually gonna see a bunch of VC associates be like, yeah, I can do that. And then they realize the math too. They go, oh, if I can get ten to fifteen thousand dollar checks, actually, I can go raise two million or three million. Take front load the fees of three percent or four percent over the first four years, and actually pay myself just as much money as I would in an entry level job at a startup. Yep, it's crazy to think about it like that. And then you start thinking about it. It's like a million dollars, assuming you're not doing follow on rounds, and let's just not add in legal fees or whatnot. That's forty twenty five thousand dollars checks. 
That's a sizable portfolio. That is a very sizable portfolio. Yeah, three million. That's a hundred twenty. Like that's effectively our model in a lot of ways. Maybe we should maybe we should delete this episode. Bro. But uh, no, I, I agree. And like we're literally building because of Josh. And I hope me and Josh and Clay gets a line down the line. We we theorize on these kind of things. But yeah, like we want to enable that and we want to be helpful. So hit up any of us. Hit up Josh. He's a, like a god when it comes to thinking these things through and super helpful. And he genuinely cares about people hit us up. We're quite literally creating infrastructure to make this easier for people. So let's keep the nano fun young VC movement going. Cause I just don't, I think all of us agree that the industry is top heavy in regards to influence and it's like bottom heavy in regards to work done, like most capitalistic infrastructures, but it's, it needs to change. And there's a good moment to do it right now. Everything's in flux. I agree 100%, by the way, with everything you're saying. And yes, feel free to reach out, anybody who's listening. And send him deals, because he will return the favor, I'm telling you. Okay, to this whole point, like, I think uh, a key piece here is, like, the value add, right? Like, I think the reason a lot of operator VCs and young VCs are starting to come in and say they can do their own fun is, quite frankly, because they think they can add the same value as their GPs or do, or maybe even add more. Josh, you want to talk about like your theory on the core means or ways that people can add value as a VC and maybe yeah. even spend on why you think you can do that as well as having a broad infrastructure behind you being someone's like sidekick. Yeah, definitely. That was a nice way of putting it too. First words, but I'm trying to keep it PG. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I think Simply, like you could simplify VCG's job in terms of value add into three core areas that like every founder, if you do one of these three things, you're doing something right. It's fundraising, have a network of investors that you can just intro founders to that they'll love and respect you for doing so. Secondly, customer introductions. I think this is really good for VCs who are like, I focus on a niche space. For example, maybe DevOps tools and you have a lot of developers and you're like, I'm just going to make customer introductions to developers and let them beta test your product. That's a great way to do it. Or being connected to potential channel partnership options, like specifically for those in media and entertainment who are like, oh, I'm connected to TikTok or I'm connected to CAA or whatever it may be. And then the last core area and core pillar that I really think about in terms of value add is recruiting. I think Ultimately, all three of these things are about who do you know and who can you make introductions to to add value. And that is the job. That is the goal. And if you try to go and I don't like the VCs, specifically the co-investors who are like, we're going to help you form your strategy and we're going to help you with content marketing and we're going to help you with this and that. And you know what? That's your job as the founder and I'm going to stay out of your way. I'll be here to, if you want my advice on it, Call me anytime, text me anytime. I'll provide you my unfiltered feedback, but I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. I'm going to, you know, be there to be a soundboard for you. And rather, I'm going to find the people who I can help connect you to, who I know can either help you get revenue, help you build out what you're trying to do, or three, help fund you so that you can actually build what you want to build out. And I think that's the best way to be a value add as a VC is know as many people, talented people as possible who are in control of a business's future. Agreed. 
right? I'm starting to, I'm starting to think about like, how could we just build the talent component of, of Confluence or partner with it? I think you got the dev team, all the engineers and folks to get hired in a lot of ways. How can we institutionalize that even more? But um, we're working on that, by the way, at Behind Genius. Like we are literally working on ways to like gamify the system and create these programs that essentially work as funnels for one of our three main core pillars and value adds. And I think a lot of VCs that compete on platform and marketing are thinking about this, but not necessarily executing correctly. Exactly. Okay. How do you link deals, specifically competitive deals? Because that's something that you figured out how to do very quickly in your fund as a young investor. Yeah, I think there's three ways to do it. One is build conviction as quickly as possible. There's nothing founders love more than it's when it's you understand their idea, you know what the weaknesses are, what the strengths are, and you're telling them very transparently and upfront where you stand with them. I think founders love that. I think if founders were to describe me in two words, I'd hope they'd say hustler and candid. Those would be the two words that I hope a founder would use to describe me. And I think it's worked pretty well for me so far. I think the second way is introductions. Start making introductions for founders to other investors, to other potential customers, to potential hires early on before you invest in them. Prove the value that you can add to them before you invest in them. One, it's a great way to do a gut check on should you invest in this company or not. But two, you should win a founder over. You have the privilege of investing in a founder's journey. It's not the other way around that the founder has the privilege of you investing in their journey. It's like you you get the privilege of investing in them and seeing where they go and potentially getting the the potential to make a, I'm going to be PG about this, but a ton of money. And you did literally nothing except diligence them, ask them questions and give them nightmares for nights on end, whether they were going to get funding or not, because they're stressing out if they're going to get funding or not. And so like, I think investors forget that because they're in a position of privilege and they forget that you are actually the customer who you're, you are the seller. And you need to sell the founder that you can add value and that you are a big believer in their vision and their journey. And that's my thoughts on what you should be doing pre-investment to win a competitive deal because founders respect the respected a ton. Agreed. Agreed. What are your, what is your opinion right now on, so one, we've talked about like the soft piece, which is the introductions, adding real value, like actually not just being a check. Even though there's some firms, like I really like correlation, but it's a completely different model, right? Like they're the neutral capital in the room. But, and that's important. But how do you feel about VCs starting to compete, not only on their value add, like we're talking about now, but also, I guess, on the back end piece and front end piece, back end being platform and then front end being marketing. What are your thoughts on, on how that's been a, a changing dynamic in the industry? Yeah, I think like VCs have increasingly had to compete on platform and marketing in recent times to one, because there is an abundance of funds out there and differentiation is really hard. So this becomes a way to source and filter deals into your funnel. And ultimately, platform should be what helps you add value to your, your startup. And marketing should be what helps source, filter, and identifies the companies that you want to invest in. 
um, they should help with company selection. And I think where a lot of VCs go wrong is they over-index on the marketing and frankly don't do a great job marketing, I'm just going to say, and don't over-index on platform, actually. I think one of the best hires you can make as a VC right out of the gate is either like a head of community or a head of platform or like a chief of staff type role. I think it's one of the most impactful hires you can make straight out of the gate. And I actually have seen like Jeff Morris recently just posted for, I think his first full-time hire is going to be a chief of staff. I saw Brianne Kimmel was looking to do the same. I've seen, I've seen a few fund managers starting to go towards that trend and understandably so. A good head of platform, chief of staff community becomes a huge way to conduct portfolio support when you don't have the bandwidth to. Yep. I agree. I agree. I think there's some funds who actually hire people with chief of staff before converting them to, to being investors at the platform. Like for instance, Felicity, which was one of my alma mater funds when I was still in college, they had Toby and I forget the other family's name, but they had them come on as chief of staff then promoted them to senior associates. And I think that's also a really good way. Like I talked to a buddy of mine at Insight today and he's like, yo, like I spent all my time just sourcing. And I haven't really learned how to run a firm. I haven't really learned how to do this, that, or the other. From a training perspective, most VC, most young VCs never actually learn what it's like to build the actual infrastructure of the firm. Taking on a chief of staff role that has some angle in investing, if that's what the firm may want for you, is probably the best training ground you can get to become an actual GP. Right? You're helping the portfolio. You're creating the back end. You're helping or lending hands and maybe that might be a boardroom setting or an investment process or due diligence process and i would have if i could go back 0.72 was lucky that we all did that anyway but i would not deter people from taking those positions if they could and hiring i think is smart when josh is hiring everyone just know that he's looking for a chief of staff oh no for sure actually i've talked with Paige a lot about this when i hire for behind genius which probably won't be until fund two, depending on fund size, will be a chief of staff, unequivocally. Like, not even a question. Yo, Clay, you want to hire a chief of staff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it actually might, like, in all seriousness, if, if me and Clay's stuff, like, keeps playing out how it goes, like, it may make some sense for us to hire someone like that. Um, who knows? Who knows? So at this point... I'd be lucky to be your chief of staffs. Dude, just come be a third partner and we'll just. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, dudes, right now we want to give you a chance to ask us questions. You can ask us anything you want. Clay will probably start off because we miss his voice. And uh, from there, we'll do a quick fire round. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. I get to ask you anything in the world. All right. Tell me what, when you started Confluence, what was like the original vision and how has it changed to today? Clay? Loaded question. I think originally, so like the first thing we were planning to do, we were literally just going to have it be an open sourced resource library where we built out some of the infrastructure, put it all on a notion board, and we were just going to have it all live just on a web page so people could visit it as they chose to check out resources, become a little more competent in the rules. I'm glad we were 
we were quickly pivoted to add on a networking component to ask for some information in exchange for that resource library, which has propelled it to become more of a community rather than just like a one-stop shop where people probably don't return. We like from the beginning, we had jumped, I think we were trying to jump the gun and make it somewhat of a two-sided network where we wanted to capture investors first and then open the door to the founders. I feel like we're still in the early innings of figuring that out with Common App, but we, we wanted to really invest heavily into that. And I think that's just going to become more of a slow moving process. Like I don't know if we could just snap our fingers and have that be a really perfect flowing two-sided network that's still in the works. Other than that, I'm, I'm like trying to remember everything, like the original vision. Like I'd have to look back through my notebooks and my text messages with Tyler. I'm sure I missed a lot in there, but Tyler, you got anything else? Yeah, I think what we realized in building Common App was that it was key for us to build out a founder network in some ways or like a hook. How do you get people on your platform for a low cost or a low like CAC? It was a great way to add value to everyone in our, on our side of things. So it didn't take away from brand or mission. Was investors are happy because they're getting dope deal flow and enabling themselves to have a means of getting their companies to raise capital faster because it just pushes it to a thousand funds all like with one button. And then one thing that we did notice though was like, this kind of was like a big serving piece for our constituents or our Confluence members, but it wasn't the core driver. The core driver of this business is still getting deals done. And more importantly is like the, the core driver is people making money. And what that meant was like, we needed to get even more granular. And what we found is that there was a way for us to make people money, but like we can make them money as individuals in addition to on their fund. So that's why we launched the Confluence Access Fund. It was like, yo, we can make ourselves money while making everyone else way more money. And that makes us way closer to people because we're putting real dollars into their pockets. You're helping them build real angel track records. And then with the Future GP Scout program, which we haven't launched yet, it's like quite literally like giving people that first 10, 20 companies so they can prove a track record. Like, I think that's in the thing where it's like, if you look across the evolution of Confluence, it was like, okay, how do you help people across their venture experience? First is give them education. Then what does this job even mean? Then it's okay, the job is actually networking. After you understand what you're looking for, what you're supposed to understand. So let's give them a network. Then it's help them get deals and close deals or mark their deals. So we gave them that through Common App, through the networking component where they're meeting people, pushing deals back and forth. Then it's okay, prepare to be a partner. So start doing your own deals and building your own track record. So I think we evolved the same way that the career trajectory of a venture investor would. So just kind of think of Confluence as, you know how they say like an LLC is technically like a legal person entity. <laughs> think of uh, like the, the person actually being like a VC going through his career. <laughs> that is Confluence LLC. Gotcha. No, thanks for sharing. And it's always fun hearing you guys talk about it and just where it can go. I think I called you out of the blue last month, Tyler. I was like, hey, I got an idea about how you can expand the circles for Confluence. And that, that was a great conversation. I think we ripped it for an hour or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, we got a we got a one on one or a a two on one or one on one on one or whatever you want to call it. Me, you, and Clay coming up real soon to to chop some things up. Everyone, be on the lookout for what may come. Who knows? Cool. Any other questions? If not, quick fire. One more question. If there was one investor in each of your networks separately that I would have to meet, who would it be? Clay. Jessica Lee. 
Same. It would be haven't already. Jessica it would be, it would be you or Jessica Lee. I, I have no idea how Jessica accomplishes as much as she does every day. It's yeah, insane. I, I'm like a fanboy of Jessica Lee. So it's but for me in terms of like people who I've met who are natural hustlers, I'm sorry. Everyone else, I have a ton of best friends who are in VC or like close friends and like people I love. But like when I look at reps, if I'm like on some like who's Kobe coming in early, leaving late. And would rather put up a thousand shots than no, they'll they'll still make dinner with their kids, but they'll like be like, all right, just come to the courts and set up a table in here while I'll put up these shots. <laughs> like the Kobe energy, like I think you and Jessica have put up some Mamba mentality into the game. And damn, that's an honor. I gotta meet her, Jessica. If you're listening to this, you better freaking reach out to me. No, I'm kidding. Tyler Clay, make it happen though. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's super easy. Happy to. <laughs> Love it. Let's do the quick fire round then. Play, you got it. Cool. Let's do it. So, Josh, do these at the end. Meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We're not good at actually hitting that mark, but we try to give those guardrails. First question we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Go deep rather than wide. I think that's not great, especially when you're a generalist. I actually think it's really okay to build out a huge network and go wide and meet people and learn different skills. You don't have to learn just a certain set of hard skills in a certain niche in order to succeed. Yeah. I think especially as a younger person or just someone early in your career, like going deep on something that might just be an irrelevant industry in five years puts you in a pretty bad spot career-wise. So I agree with that. Next one, in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? We were talking about this right before the call, but actually sleep. I used to be someone who used to go to sleep at 2 to 3 a.m. every morning. And around six months ago, I changed that. And I would say my productivity is through the roof during the day. I, I get all my calls and texts done. I make it up the next morning when I wake up. And yeah, I get 10 to 12 hours of sleep every night now. That is crazy. Like, I'm still not over that. Like, I would love to just pick your brain offline about how to get in a good sleep routine because my sleep routine is literally trash right now. Like, I just haven't figured it out and I wake up grog every morning. But I'll have to link up with you after this call to, to figure out how to fix that. I Give got you, my cool. guy. I got you, my guy. Corp, let's do it. All right, got three more here. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? I think it's all the non investing parts that you don't hear about like the fund admin like the lp relations not that i don't love communicating with my lps uh, not to say that but it's just it's a lot of work where it's it's a lot of tedious work sometimes work that seems non-trivial but is really important for the functioning and the maintenance of a fund actually totally agree again totally yeah, agree again if only, if only someone could like actually solve that that'd be sick I always said it would be cool if there was like a chief of staff as a service almost like that, just like VCs and GPs could literally share like a chief of staff among six firms and they just do all the work that the VC like does not want to do specifically fund admin, LP relations, like investor updates. And that's about it. Maybe we can incubate a company like that. Maybe one exists. Who knows? All right, I got two more here. Best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. Work at a startup before you go into VC. I think there's so much to be gained from working at a startup and knowing how it functions. 
the earlier, the better, the more chaotic it is, the better. I think getting that one-on-one mentorship from a CEO who's just trying to figure things out themselves, if you find the right CEO, can be a life-changing experience and ultimately can help guide you to the right VC that you want to work for. And I think the goal of working for a VC as a junior VC is to ultimately either found your own startup or found your own firm. And so go work at a startup first, because that'll help figure out what VC you should go work for. I agree again. I feel like I've learned like twice as much also, just from a condensed period of time, like doing both routes. Yeah. My advice is do both. Like we're doing. If you're looking for no personal life, yeah, go for it. (laughs) I feel like. I'm exhausted. You you can probably hear it in my voice. It's been a long day slash week and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel you um all right last last one for me who's a mentor that you want to give credit to yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do my starting five here um just gonna say them all julia lipton from awesome people ventures courtney mccrea from recast capital arjun sethi from tribe capital samit gajri from original capital and lastly brendan rogers the former co-founder of wag all five of them without them i could not be where i am today Thank you all five of you for specifically like just helping me through a really rough time at almost this point last year, actually. Yo, that's another thing. Speed. They say a man is a, or a person is measured not by how high they go, but how high they bounce and how quickly they reach the height after bouncing. Josh, you went crazy, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, It's been, a, it's been a 360 for me, for sure. At this point last year, I was helping re- startups recruit on the side as a, a side hustle and just to pay the bills for gas and also going on the streets of LA, finding old TVs and refixing them up and then selling them again. Yeah, dude, that was, I, I, I don't really tell anybody that, but it's been, it, you know, I did that for three to six months. My parents were really worried, actually. They were scared and I, they told me to come home actually and live at home rent free where I would have been very lucky to but I was like nope like I'm out of your house I'm gonna do this on my own and I'm gonna make it work and if it's a struggle it's a struggle and I'm gonna work 10 to 12 hour work days to just make it work why not just go get a, a waiter job or something uh I'm, was, I'm joking I'm, I'm kind of it was the pandemic though so you couldn't they, no waiter jobs were really open everybody had laid off people otherwise I was gonna get a waiter job and I think the startup recruiting did pay most of my bills, but I needed a little extra to take my girlfriend out and do fun things. And I found fixing TVs actually pretty therapeutic and, and they're pretty easy to find on LA actually. And they're fun. It's, a, it's like a fun puzzle. And I, could, I actually considered being a waiter briefly, but between the pandemic, the uncertainty with how the illness was being spread, all the layoffs, not many jobs being open, it just never, it never happened, but it could have, totally could have. It's real. Well, respect, dude. You are, again, that's why you, we putting you up in the Hall of Fame. I think with that, I unfortunately have been having a super dope time, but because we're trying to do both, I got to run. And I'm going to call you anyway to hang out. Sorry, y'all. That part won't be recorded. I just want to say thank you so much for kicking it with us, bro. No, thanks for having me, both of you. Always good kicking it with you guys and talking venture and appreciate it.
Huge thanks again to Josh for coming on this week. Hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Josh, we've linked his social info in the description below, and you can also find his contact info within the Complex VC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.